Today is Wednesday, May 3rd, 2017. Welcome to episode number two of the Barnhart Podcast. Anne, how was your last week? Outstanding. A um, little bit busy. Did some uh, did some more road tripping, going to consult with high-level people about lofty questions, so didn't, uh, didn't post much on the old website last week, but I'm back now at home base and happy to be here with you again for episode two. And I stayed pretty busy this last week. I mentioned last time that this is going to be a work in progress, getting the quality better as we're going. And anybody who's listening can hear that I sound a whole lot better this week. And there's a really good reason for that. And it's not just the new microphone that I'm using. It's the fact that even though I thought I was using my boom microphone last week, it was the microphone on the side of my Mac that was actually recording me the whole time. Oh, and I was I was mortified nice. when I when I realized that. So it, uh, that's, yeah, a new, newbie mistake. I got that solved so we can move on to, to better things. Also, for for those of you who want to subscribe to the podcast on your iTunes or Andro- or on your iPhone or your Android phone or anything like that, the links are now available. The podcast is now published in iTunes. It's in the Android Google Play Store. It is on Stitcher. It is on uh, TuneIn. It's also on YouTube as well. So it is uh, easy to find and easy to subscribe. And, of course, subscribe for free. Excellent work there, super nerd. We're proud of you. I'm just trying to do my job here. (laughs) So in the news this last week, uh, the New York Times had a story about uh, a conspiracy theorist in Central Texas. No, not the one with the podcast, the one with the radio show, talking about how he says things that aren't exactly real. Uh, Do you want to tell more about this? Well, yeah, this was um, this New York Times piece was was forwarded to me by more than one person. And it was forwarded to me because the word kayfabe and the whole notion of the professional wrestling paradigm where the audience winkingly, quote unquote, understands that it's all fake. And it was it was presented in the context of Alex Jones and Infowar, who apparently is getting divorced or something like that. And he he argued in court because I think his 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 wife was trying to say was trying to use clips of his um, of his show to demonstrate that he was emotionally unstable. And and Jones replied by saying, well, this is all theatrical. This is all part of my shtick. This is not this cannot be taken as indicative of my emotional state in my private life which was very interesting a very interesting thing to say he basically admitted that what he was do what that what he Alex Jones was doing was just theater and showmanship and you know a lot of us have have fully comprehended this for a long long time um but the the thing that the the New York Times said was in terms of Trump and using the word kayfabe and using using the example of professional wrestling and and also Alex Jones and Infowar, the notion that the entire Trump uh, movement and Trump's words and deeds were in fact kayfabe, they were theatrical. Now there's there's one uh, very important point that this New York Times article was mistaken on the New York Times article was arguing that most people out there who were supporters of Trump knew full well that Trump's shtick was just that that it was shtick and it was dishonest 
much the same way that most of the people who watch professional wrestling understand that it is entertainment. It's not real. It's theater. And oh, that that's incorrect. Oh, I and, disagree and much, vehemently with that. In much the same way that the supporters of the previous president thought that he really was going to close Guantanamo in the first year and you can take it to the bank. There's a very famous sound clip of him saying that during the campaign. Any number of promises that he made that, you know, golly, he didn't keep any of them. Exactly, exactly. But the notion that all of these people out here who were these hardcore Trump supporters knew full well that Trump didn't actually intend to do any of the things that he was saying and that um, Trump would turn up basically 180 degrees immediately upon ascending to the White House. I'm sorry, that is that is completely incorrect. That's the problem. And that's why people like me were jumping up and down and screaming and yelling, because it was obvious that Trump was not going to do any of the things that he was talking about doing, because first and foremost, he can't. I mean, the president of the former United States is that office is not a dictatorship. I I still think that you would need to have some sort of participation by by the Congress. And that's what we're seeing right now that the Congress won't pass a a bill repealing Obamacare, for example. Um, Well, of course they won't. They they have no intention of doing it. And that's his own party who apparently twice during the Obama presidency passed the same bill that now they won't pass. Exactly. Because they knew gosh darn good and well that when Obama was in the White House, if they passed it, that he would veto it. So there was no risk of of um, Obamacare actually being repealed, which none of them want. They're all fully in favor of it. So now, now that you have the Congress and you presumably have the White the White House, um, isn't it interesting now that they can't get this this bill passed and and so on and so forth because it's all theater. All of these votes are designed so that these people can go back to their local district and say, oh, look, we, I gave it my best, my best try. I mean, they negotiate about who, whose congressional districts are the safest. And by that, that is determined who will vote in favor of, of these losing, these bills that are intended to lose. So you say, okay, this guy over here, he needs to have more grassroots support, so let him vote in favor of repeal. But this guy over here, his, his district is safe. Even if he votes against repeal, the seat is still safe, so he'll vote against. And they, they negotiate all of this out. These these actions are theatrical and they're meaningless. But back to the New York Times piece and the New York Times now starting to use that word kayfabe, which I was using late last year. And honestly, you know, I've said this before. I honestly did not know that Donald Trump had literally been involved in WWE wrestling just a few years ago. And when I stumbled across that clip of Donald Trump in the wrestling ring, literally physically wrestling and body slamming, um, what's the, the head of the WWE, what's his name, Vince McMahon. I came across that clip and my jaw was on the floor because I had started making this, this point about professional wrestling, not having any idea that Trump literally was involved in this. And I think it's very reasonable to assume 
that Trump in conversations with Vince McMahon, who is also a billionaire, I think Vince McMahon is probably has a greater net worth than Trump does. And, you know, these two men would talk to each other, both being um, billionaires or in the case of Trump, if he's not a billionaire, he's a you know, he's a nine figure millionaire. These people, these two men sitting around talking about this. And it is it is not unreasonable to think that a connection, a clear connection was drawn between national level politics and what goes on with professional wrestling. In fact, Vince McMahon's wife, Linda, has run a couple of times for, I believe, Senate in, I believe, Connecticut. And I don't and obviously she hasn't won, but the McMahons are actively involved in national level politics to think now, knowing what we know that Trump was involved in WWE wrestling, to think that that conversation never happened, that to draw the analogy between these two things, Trump being a showman, Trump being a reality television star, et cetera, et cetera, I think it's very reasonable to assume that the conversation was had explicitly, that you need that, quote unquote, you need to attack um, national level politics the same way that we attack professional wrestling and and use this paradigm of kayfabe, there are people um, who who do believe that um, professional wrestling is real. There's an entire genre of, of videos on YouTube of grown adult, mostly men, who are you know bur- bursting into tears and and declaring that. They, in fact, believe that professional wrestling is real. It's real to them. This is also um, a manifestation, I think, of kind of this creeping and growing um, percentage of the population that are either schizophrenic or low-grade schizophrenic. And I see this all the time in my email box. I get emails consistently from people who are clearly schizophrenic, who are detached from reality, who actually believe that they are, for example, having a relationship with me, that they know who I am, that we are carrying uh, carrying on a clandestine romance and everything I say, do, write, put on the internet is speaking to them directly, specifically, and personally in some secret coded language. And, you know, you get a steady stream of these and it's it's really been um, it's been educational and an eye opener to for the last several years be a person who has even a, a minor presence on the Internet that I have. But to see how many people there are who are either schizophrenic or low grade schizophrenic who are out there running around in the population. And so. This detachment from reality, this would inform or explain people, for example, who think that professional wrestling is real. Um, I don't I'm I'm not going to say that people who think that Trump was sincere are schizophrenic. I'm not making that argument at all. I think a lot of people were just very naive and dumb and desperate and just truly wanted to believe that this person who came out and was saying all these things that sounded so good, they just desperately wanted to believe, especially after eight years of this Obama nightmare and watching your, your nation essentially be usurped and and 
and cease to exist, in my opinion. I don't think the, the Constitutional Republic of the United States even exists anymore. So many people were so traumatized by this and so desperate to reach out and grasp onto something that sounded good and rational and reasonable, and that they they looked at Trump, and even in the face of all of the evidence that should have told you that this guy was not sincere about any of these positions, and that he was playing this as an entertainment scheme coming out of the reality television show and and now we know coming out of the professional wrestling paradigm that he's come out of that he would he was just simply telling people what they wanted to hear and people in their naivete believed him and now people are getting a good solid dose and a wake-up call of the fact that it, it was all theater all along and even the new york times now is picking up and using this word kayfabe although they are incorrect in their assessment that many Trump supporters knew that it was all fake. No, that, that's not true. I think almost all of the Trump supporters honestly believed that Trump was going to follow through and do what he said he was going to do and believed what he was actually saying. And sadly, people are being scandalized, but they're getting the wake-up wake call as to what the reality of the situation is. Well, honestly, I I voted for him. Not well, actually, I, I shouldn't say I voted for him. I voted against the other the other guy, and I'm saying guy on purpose. Uh, yeah. and I would I would have been I would have been very pleasantly surprised if Trump actually followed through on a tenth of what he was promising. I want to uh, go back on um, wrestling and politics, though. It's it's not just Trump and uh, Vince McMahon. If you recall, before the 2008 election, all of the uh, candidates, I'm going to say the top four that were left, but definitely Obama and Hillary and McCain all made present, all, all made appearances at professional wrestling events and made some pitch to the, the viewers of professional uh, wrestling, all giving themselves wrestler nicknames like McCain and his McCainiacs and Hillrod and something else. I don't know what Barry's line was, but there there's this clear recognition that there's there's almost something re- giving credence to to the reality of that so it, it's it, are we really surprised that trump has that connection as well and tying it full circle you know the the conspiracy theorist who's who's playing kayfabe on the radio a lot of people believe he's telling the truth too and oh by the way trump also appeared on his show a couple of times in the run-up to the election that was a, a that was a big uh, part of trump's uh, support base as well yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of Alex Jones, the problem that I've had with Alex Jones from the very beginning, not only can you tell that he's fake, and I'm also largely the same thing with Glenn Beck. It didn't take long before I discerned that Glenn Beck was, was basically on television acting. Um, but the thing about Alex Jones that really, really chaps me and has from the very beginning is that there are all kinds of people on on that website on infowars and in those chat forums and so forth who are who are deeply mentally ill who are schizophrenic who are talk who get on there and say you know i am i am being uh, controlled by government mind control beams and and just insanity like this just all of this clearly schizophrenic insanity manifesting and it's almost as if infowars and all of that is playing to that and taking advantage of those people and you know stoking and it doesn't matter if these people are schizophrenic and detached from reality and mentally ill can we get them to sign up can we get them to set up a recurring donation to subscribe to this that or the other and then these people come there and they get fed and their schizophrenic fantasies 
um, just keep getting stoked and stoked and stoked. And it's, it's pretty clear that, um, Jones and other people out there on the internet have identified these people, these low grade schizophrenics as a market to be tapped. And that is just, that is morally despicable. It's absolutely despicable. And, and these people who follow his show, they think he is a good man too. Uh, now granted that the demographic that listens to his show probably won't watch the Joe Rogan podcast and see Alex Jones down a half a bottle of whiskey and smoke a joint while he's talking to Joe Rogan, but that's on the internet. You can find it. So yep, absolutely. Know, he's yep. to, for him to say anything other than it's an act. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a lie <laughs> in more ways than <laughs> yeah. one. Yep, indeed, indeed. But going back to the the idea that the that Trump could actually change anything if he wanted to, uh, Paul Craig Roberts, who, if I'm not mistaken, was a Reagan advisor back during the the Reagan administration, wrote a piece recently that was posted on Zero Hedge talking about how Trump is now a captive of the deep state. Indeed, um, but is he a captive? That's the question that we all have. I I really don't subscribe to that. I think that Trump is is fully on board with everything that's going on. I think that he has tre- tremendous commonality with the Soros agenda, with this new world order agenda. I don't think he has any any interest in any genuine reformation of the former United States government. I think he's completely invested in having having it carry on exactly as it is. And the healthcare thing is is point number one with that. Trump is doing, first of all, Trump has always, for his entire adult life, been a, a very open proponent of univer- universal single-payer healthcare. He has openly ta- uh, uh, declared the glories of the Canadian healthcare system and things like this, and said that the United States needs to have single payer healthcare as well. Okay, wait. Of course, he's not going. They're not going to repeal Obamacare. Um, what these people are about is power first and foremost, and there is no greater uh, way to control a populace than to be able to control healthcare delivery and so forth. If we if we believe that Trump is some sort of a financial genius or even financial financially literate, he's not a financial genius. He inherited like 200 million in the early 80s. Okay, if you if you get plunked down in the middle of New York City in the early 1980s with a 200 million dollar cash head start, um, you almost can't help but be may at least maintain and tread water and still be a a nine-figure millionaire. I saw something not too long ago. Well, it was last year. And it showed what what if Trump had just taken his $200 million head start from his father and invested it in just a very simple S&P index fund? He would be way, way, way farther ahead in terms of net worth than where he is now. He's he's cycled. He's basically made a living by cycling in and out of bankruptcy and using bankruptcy as as a strategic part of his business plan, literally going into deals saying, "Okay, I'm going to buy this, this, this and this. And then X number of years from now, we will file for BK. And that means that we'll be able to walk away from this, this, this and this Okay, going into going into a business plan with the intention 
of going bankrupt and walking away from debts and using that as a calculus in your in your business plan that's deeply massively immoral it's not an it's not an indication of being some sort of a financial genius it's an indication of not having a a functioning conscience um so he's not any sort of a of a financial genius or any of these things we know this because we can look at what he's saying, doing, and not doing with regards to the healthcare situation. Um, this is mathematically, financially, you know, my my shtick and um, what a lot of my focus on in terms of um, educating people about the economic system, the financial markets, and so forth, has been derivatives. Um, largely because that was what I did. That was my career. I was a commodities broker, which is it's a what I did was commercial hedging, actual, actual hedging of actual cattle and actual grain from farmers and ranchers. So that was just a first level derivative. But this derivatives market as it exists now is terrifyingly huge into the quadrillions of dollars in notional value. And so I kind of focused on educating people about that. But really, the number one top danger, the clear and present danger to the the American economy, the whole kit and caboodle is this healthcare delivery thing, and the fact that these costs are escalating at something like nine percent per year. Which, if you use the rule of seventy-two and divide it out, that means that the cost of healthcare is doubling every eight years. That's the length of the doubling cycle, and we're already multiple doubling cycles into this paradigm, which is now decades old. What what we know now and what we can see, and this is objective mathematics, because of this disordered insurance situation where, in fact, insurance isn't even insurance anymore. And I've written about this extensively on the blog within the last couple of months, just explaining to people, look, if you're talking about covering insurance that covers pre-existing conditions, you're not even a serious person. You're this is this is not an, a serious adult conversation. The, the notion that insurance would cover pre-existing conditions is is nonsensical on its face. You're not talking about insurance. You're talking about an asset shifting scheme at that point. Do we honestly believe that Donald Trump does not understand even the most basic, basic fundamental principles of insurance? Well, either he doesn't, either he does not understand the basic fundamental principles of insurance or he's a dishonest actor in all of this. He could be both too. As you said, if you if you started out with 200 million dollars in the early 80s, why isn't that guy worth 20 billion or more? Why isn't he rivaling uh, Bill Gates uh, territory? Yep, exactly. Exactly. In New York he's of all not, places. You can't In you, New York, yes, in one of the most the most highly inflated and consistently inflating real estate markets, you know, but it, it isn't just his Manhattan investments. I mean, who in their right mind would be investing in in Atlantic City, New Jersey? I mean, give me a break. And that was that was his bread and butter for quite some time. Oh, uh, maybe but, somebody with mob ties. Yeah, maybe. Um, but back to the insurance thing. The thing that that um, Trump is not only not addressing, and which I haven't written on yet. And I, I'm kind of put off on it because I don't want to step on Carl Denninger's toes over at MarketTicker.org. I mean, I don't think it's stepping on his toes, but he's he's the man who has been for years screaming and yelling 
about this business of this price fixing and collusion that is now completely built in to the American healthcare delivery uh, matrix because of this disordered situation with insurance, which isn't even really insurance. The point is, you go in, let's say you and I both get into a into terrible car wrecks separately. You're greased by a drunk driver, I'm greased by a drunk driver, and we both have si- similar level injuries. When we go to the hospital, when they, first of all, they're not going to tell you in advance what anything is going to cost. There is no public uh, declaration of any prices or costs for any healthcare delivery anymore. Um, so you go in and what they're going to do is they're going to size you up. They're going to look at what insurance you have existing now. They're going to look at your income, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going to bill you based upon how they, how much money they determine they can extract from you. They will do the same with me. So they'll look at me and they'll see that I have no insurance, that I have no steady income, um, et cetera, et cetera, and that I and that my estate has basically been reduced down to nothing. And they'll bill me differently than they bill you. This is wildly, wildly illegal. What if you went to the gas station and the the gas station you know, pinged your social security number, pulled up all of your personal financial information. And after you would pump the gas, then presented you with a bill. And one person has to pay $10 a gallon for gas. And some other person has to pay 25 cents a gallon for gas. Would anybody put up with that? No, but that's exactly what happens every single day in terms of healthcare delivery. And the reason that people put up with it is because of insurance, which isn't even really insurance. But the point is nobody asks what anything costs. Everybody just shrugs their shoulders and say, oh, oh well, the insurance will pay for it or the government will pay for it. No, there is a complete detachment from the price points, from the market. There's no engagement of the market. And so these price points are basically arbitrary and are being feloniously manipulated so that people who have money or people who have an insurance policy with XYZ category of of insurance company, they are getting charged multiples and sometimes orders of magnitude more than other people with a different situation or a different financial carrier. This has to stop. This is why this is why these health care costs are escalating at nine percent per year on this, you know, exponential curve. And this is what is going to utterly consume and destroy the entire United States government. Medicaid and Medicare, if this is allowed to go on like this and these these costs just go through the roof like this, utterly unchecked by by means of this illegal collusion and price fixing. And we haven't even talked about the pharmaceuticals. Um, uh, an example that Deniger gives frequently is this business of, I, I want to say it's scorpion antivenin. You know, down in the south on the Mexican border, down in there, people get stung by scorpions and they need some sort of antivenin. Or maybe it's maybe it's snake bite antivenin. Rattle, I don't know. It's, it, it's something. I, I think, if it's, I think rat, it's rattlesnake. Yeah, rattlesnake. 
okay, so in the United States, some people can get charged as much as like $80,000 for a course of this anti-venin, whereas if you go across the border into Mexico, it's less than $1,000 for the same dose of this anti-venin. And you look at this and you realize that this is all collusion between the, the government of the former United States, the insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, and the, the hospital networks themselves, many of which are tied, are tied directly to the Roman Catholic Church. And that, this is a whole other can of worms of this business of the church just turning itself into a for-profit middleman, actively participating in these schemes wherein people are billed for, for the health care services that they receive based upon what the state, the hospital, the insurance company, the pharmaceutical company determine that they can, they can bleed out of somebody. And so, yeah, if, if you get bitten by a rattlesnake in, in Arizona, it's gonna, somebody's going to get billed and end up uh, shuffling money around to the tune of $80,000, whereas down in Mexico, someone could pay for it and put it on a credit card pretty easily, you know, and it's, it's not a big deal. The, these kinds of things, this felonious paradigm, and that's what it is, this is straight-up felony felony criminal action that not only goes completely unchecked, unpunished, but is actively supported, facilitated. And let's face it, the United States government is the number one player in all of this. In fact, it was not too long ago, it was a few months ago, that I think it was Paul Ryan introduced legislation that specifically exempted I want to say pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies from the statutes on the books that are there against price fixing, collusion, etc. I mean, they, they know what they're doing. They know it's a crime. They know what's going on. They're all a bunch of psychopaths. They get their cut. They get to participate in this personally. And, you know, everybody makes it worth everyone's while. Nobody's going to do anything to stop this. And there, there's no hope. There is absolutely no hope until these things are corrected. Price fixing and collusion and then correct the insurance paradigm. I think that it's so far gone that insurance, anything that is beyond catastrophic coverage, meaning, you know, um, $10,000 deductible or something like that, you know, catastrophic coverage is all that should be legal. This this notion of having insurance that covers every little thing is is irrational. It is mathematically impossible. It makes no sense. It's it should be illegal because there's no way that you can have a paradigm like that that isn't going to be just monumentally destructive to the marketplace and to the society. And that's what we're seeing right now. And do, so Trump, back to Trump, does, does he understand this? Does he not understand it? If he doesn't understand it genuinely, then he's a fraud and he has absolutely no business being president of the former United States. If he does understand it, then he's a liar. And he know, and he's complicit in this, and he knows what he's doing. Well, to the point, how do they get away with this? Two things play into this. First off, I don't think people understand what you just said. 
And secondly, they haven't got the, the attention span to learn it if they didn't know it before. I mean, we're talking about people who think they don't pay taxes, that so the government pays them a refund every year. Yeah. Not, not yeah. understanding the whole principle of income withholding. Yep, absolutely. And I, I think that's true. I think that people, um, I, I published a piece um, a couple of months ago explaining, just explaining fundamental concepts of, of insurance. And I received emails from people that said, I, I had never understood that before. In my mind, insurance was just the mechanism by which medical bills are paid. And that's it. The notion of risk pooling or any of these <laughs> any of these incredibly fundamental concepts to insurance, I don't think I don't think anybody under I not anybody. I think a vast majority of people don't understand what this is, what it is supposed to be. The thing that I don't understand is there's there's enough people who are old enough that they remember that up until not too terribly long ago, most people didn't have insurance. Um, it was a completely optional thing. How can it go from being this thing that was completely optional, only a few people had it, to being completely, totally mandatory, you can't live without it? The other thing that I don't understand is looking what has happened intentionally to insurance premiums. I mean, the point of Obamacare was to, to have exactly the result that we, that we have now. It's a subset of the Cloward-Piven strategy. Set up a situation in which... Um, you, you sow the seeds of internal destruction within, within the system itself. You want the system to collapse in order to get to the next level. So in the case of, of healthcare delivery, they want to utterly destroy the health insurance paradigm so that they can then move on to the next step of having full government control, you know, with the people clamoring for it, the people saying, this, this is crazy. Look at my insurance premiums. Look at you, what your insurance premiums have done for those of you who are still buying and paying for insurance. Look at what your insurance premiums have done just over the last decade. About Look at how much. Almost a tenfold increase for me. Yeah, an order of magnitude increase. And they're trying to pass laws telling you that it is now legally mandatory as a condition of waking up breathing in the former United States that you have to buy this service commodity, which is increased in cost by an order of magnitude over the last decade. Does, do, I don't, does no, do no red flags go off in anyone's mind? Do people just nod and say, well, yeah, I guess I have to pay. I don't even know how much people are paying. I know it's thousands and thousands of dollars a month for just the base level family healthcare coverage. I mean, this is, do, do no flags go off when you're doing this? People are now routinely paying more in health insurance premiums than they're paying on their mortgage. The health insurance is a higher cost than their monthly mortgage payment. And it, does nobody just think to stop and say, wait, what in the hell is going on here? This can't be right. This cannot be right. Nobody does, apparently. In fact, they clamor and they want, they want more. They want more coverage, more free stuff. And again, I guess money, money comes from, 
from the the fancy machine that spits money out of the wall. I mean, it grows on trees to most people. I, I don't know what people are thinking. I honestly don't. And no, how it, they it don't. Comes, it comes from the government because the politicians said that they would give it to them. And that's so they got the vote that way. Yeah, I guess so, man. I guess so. But there it is. And that's where we stand. And this is a, this is a topic we could easily consume two hours on, I'm sure. Oh, but, easily, uh, easily, yeah. I know we said last week the goal here is uh, 30 to 60 minutes, and and uh, we don't. Uh, last week was a longer show. One of the things we're we're gonna try to do is uh, stick to our clock a little bit better. Want to get to a little bit of uh, listener feedback. Um, okay. I didn't mention that at the top of the show. Uh, in addition to all the different ways you can subscribe to the podcast, there's also a podcast email address, podcast at barnhart.biz. Very easy email address to to remember. So we got a question from a listener, Kyle, who asks about your position with regard to the current resident of Casa Santa Marta. And he says, it's claimed that universal adherence of the church to an elected pope gives an infallible certitude that such a man is a true pope. And he gives a link to where the summary of this can be can be read if you want to. And then another link to uh, a more detailed summary about this. What do you think of that statement? Does the universal acceptance of somebody being the pope make them the pope? Well, this is a very interesting question right now because, you know, it's pretty clear that we are in a, a situation that is unprecedented in, in the history of the church. Mass apostasy over the last 50 years. Um, and so the, the, the argument that is made that just blows my mind, there's a lot of especially trads, well, almost exclusively trads, who who winkingly, if not openly, argue that Novus Ordoism is a different religion, that it's a different religion, and this Vatican II post-conciliar church is a completely different beast and a completely different animal. But then, in almost the same breath, they will say, but yet we have to wait for the adherence of this new religion to tell us what the truth is. Now, this is this is the living, breathing definition of um, the the violation of the law of non-contradiction. Something cannot both be and not be at the same time. Now, I do not subscribe to the to the notion that Novus Ordoism is a completely different religion. I don't believe that that's true. It is a it is a horrific, horrific, in fact, probably the worst heresy that the church has ever suffered through. I think that's very clear. The, the objective evidence is right there. The mass apostasy of the last 50 years. It's far worse, I think, even now than the Arian heresy was in in the fourth century. Um but uh, how can it be, as we objectively look at the situation, we look at the bishops, we look at the faithful, we look at the priests, and as we've talked about a lot on my blog, almost none of these people actually hold whole and entire the Catholic faith anymore. Okay, Most of these people are heretics. Most of the bishops are sodomites. We know that the church has been completely infected with um, communists, Freemasons, who then recruited communists, who then recruited sodomites into the ranks of the church. There is that, and that is who is making up the the class of prelates, especially in the church today. That is to say, bishops. 
almost all of them are heretics. And I would say now the majority of bishops, especially, are sodomites. So let me get this straight. Knowing what we know about the words of our Lord, specifically the Good Shepherd discourse and his explicit warning to us that as the sheep, it will be on us to discern the voice of the shepherd and to separate this from the faithless hirelings who will want to sell you out to the wolves. Okay, our Lord is very clear in the Good Shepherd discourse about who is ultimately going to be responsible for these things and who has to use their use their powers of of perception, observing objective reality and make these determinations. The notion that we need to sit around and wait for a group of men specifically that we know we absolutely know are heretics and most of them are sodomites, to tell us who is or who is not the Pope when we have this objective evidence right in front of us, clearly in front of us. Um, this, this is insanity. This is morally insane. It, I, it seems to me that it is extraordinarily effeminate. It's wanting to deflect responsibility off on anything else but yourself. Wanting to say, well, you know, I, I have opinions about this, that, or the other, but I, I'm not, I'm not in a position to make to make any sort of a judgment call on this. Uh, the Good Shepherd discourse argues against that vehemently. In fact, the Gospels argue against this. Our Lord is constantly, individually challenging individuals to say, who who do you think that I am? What what do what does the evidence show you when um, John the Baptist, for example, sends his disciples to ask Christ who he is? John the Baptist did that not because John the Baptist was unsure. John the Baptist knew exactly who he was because, A, first, he's John the Baptist. He's his cousin. Um, he, he knows who Christ is. He sends his disciples to Christ to ask him because he wants them to personally Engage this question. You cannot love that which you do not first apprehend with your intellect. That is why Christ didn't just appear on earth and do like the emperor in Star Wars and shoot uh, lightning out of his fingertips and just dazzle everybody with his with these man with supernatural manifestations of his divinity because how can you how can you love someone if there's just if there's no intellectual engagement? That's why he never comes out and says in in his earthly ministry until the very, very end. Yes, I am the Christ. Yes, yes, yes. He he never answers the question just directly because he's constantly trying to get people to engage intellectually Look at what do you see? The dead are raised, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. What do you see? What are your what are your powers of observation telling you here? And yes, the responsibility is on you as the individual person to to make this determination about what the situation is. By doing this, by intellectually engaging, then we can grow and love more and more, deeper and deeper and deeper. And it, it's interesting, all the people 
who I know of who who scoff at my position are also the same sorts of people that scoff when I start talking about, you know, using the the sadly uh, co-opted phrase by the Protestants about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The same people who keep saying, well, you you have to defer the Pope is the Pope until the Pope says he's not the Pope. These are the same sorts of people that if you want to actually sit down and have a conversation about a real, genuine personal relationship with Jesus Christ will, you know, become agitated and they don't want to talk about that and blah, blah, blah. Oh, you're touchy-feely and you're a keener and, and this, that, and the other. Well, I, I guess so. If, I, if I'm normally emotionally effective and I actually believe in all this and I actually do want to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if that makes me, if that makes me a keener, then so be it. I, I take that pejorative um, happily. The point is, we have all of these instances where we, where God is, is challenging us to use our intellects to, to inform ourselves as to what objective reality is and I think that if one just sits down and looks at the objective reality of this dire, bleak, unprecedented emergency situation in the church, I think it becomes instantaneously clear that we as individuals are called to individually engage this and not sit around and wait for men that we know are arch heretics and sex perverts to tell us what the truth is and tell us who Christ is and tell us who Christ's vicar is. Um, a lot of people will say, well, that that just makes you a Protestant. No, I don't think it does, because it's been made very clear. And our Lord even says himself in the scriptures that, you know, in these days of tribulation, that if he did not shorten them himself, that even the elect would lose their faith. So again, what that's telling us is that person by person, individual by individual, there are there are going to be people who who lose their faith and that this is a risk and that each of us are responsible for this and that this situation is real. It it's been it's been prophesied many different ways, you know, Our Lady of Fatima and also the words of our Lord in Scripture that this this terrible thing is going to happen. How can you not, how can you argue that we should not engage our intellects and we should just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who the vicar of Christ is. Well, of course it does. Of course it matters who the vicar of Christ is. And the conclusion that so many more people are coming to all the time is, is that if if Bergoglio is in fact the vicar of Christ, then Christ's promises to Peter are empty. And I think we talked about this last week in the podcast. This is the scandal that's coming out of this and why this question is important. It is of the utmost importance. And we can't just shrug our shoulders and, you know, push it off and say, well, it's for future generations to decide this. What What if the apostles... What if when Christ had, had confronted the apostles, let's say after, let's say when he confronted Peter and the rest of them after the bread of life discourse in John chapter six, what if the response from Peter had been, well, you know, I'm, I'm just a fisherman. I don't have a degree in theology. Um, I can't really say one way or the other whether or not you are divine. 
Um, I'm just going to leave this to future generations to figure out. What if the apostles had all said that? Well, we can't really know who he was, so we're just going to leave it to future generations to figure out. The church would have been dead right there. It would have been dead before it even got off the ground. But no, each of these people, not theologians, not super highly educated people, the exception to that would, of course, be Paul, who was super highly educated. The, The rest of the 12 were not. They were mostly laborers, you know, fishermen, tradesmen. And to be fair, Paul was not one of the twelve. He was one of the disciples that, that exactly uh, he's, he's referred to as the apostle of the Gentiles, but he wasn't one of the twelve. Exactly, he's not one of the twelve. He's by far the most educated of the entire group. Um, if if they had said, "Well, we're going to be effeminate about this, and we're not going to take a stand, and we're not going to make a decision, and we're not going to state definitively, yes." We believe that you are the Christ. We believe that you are the Son of God. We believe that you are God incarnate. Eh, we can't know. We'll just defer. That, that act of intense effeminacy would have, would have absolutely killed the church from day one. I think it's the same thing here. I think this business of just trying to not take personal responsibility for discerning this in light of the Good Shepherd discourse, which is my touchstone in all of this, um, I think that that is an act of intense effeminacy, and it's also an act of indifference to your fellow man, because as as I am morally certain that that Bergoglio is not the vicar of Christ, this is intensely important because of the scandal that he's causing by people who mistakenly believe that he is. Um, and it's also destroying the office of the papacy itself. I mean, the damage that he's doing, that's that's another really good point. Every time um, a traditional believing Catholic looks at uh, Bergoglio and says, he's the Pope, but he's a heretic and nothing he says matters, blah, da, 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 da. there will be another Pope, we can just ignore this one. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What happens when the next Pope is, let's call him Pope Pius Thirteenth, or, you know, super Pope? super orthodox, completely Catholic, tries to get about the work of rebuilding and restoring the church. Don't, doesn't it seem to you that our own words will be used against us saying, well, yes, Bergoglio was the pope, but, but we could ignore him. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Don't you think that Satan is going to turn that back on us and say, well, you know, you said it was okay to disregard Bergoglio. Now we're going to say, now all the liberals are going to say, it's okay to disregard Pope Pius XIII. And when Pope Pius XIII says something like, for example, that there will be under no circumstances any female ordination ever, there will never be any ratification of sodomy, there will never be any ratification of divorce and remarriage, doesn't it seem to you that our own words will be used against us to say, the liberals will say, well, they said it was okay to ignore Bergoglio. Now we say it's okay to ignore Pius XIII, who's, you know, actually the Pope and actually Catholic. Um, see, so by doing this, by operating off this false premise about who the identity of the Vicar of Christ is, by launching from this false premise, you are, you are yourself participating in the destruction of, of the office of the papacy itself. 
You see, that's that's the chessboard that Satan has set. So um, the other point I want to make is this whole notion that if all if all of the faithful agree on something, then it must be true. Well, wait a minute. Truth is not a democracy, first of all. Um, St. Athanasius, whose feast day was just a couple of days ago, I think he would he would beg to differ with you on that. Because Athanasius at the pe- contramundum. Athanasius contramundum, Athanasius against the world, because at the peak of the Arian heresy, he was, for all intents and purposes, alone. And for those of you who are listening who don't really know much about the Arian heresy, what it basically did was it, it was denying the divinity of Christ. And it's Athanasius, it's St. Athanasius, who stood firmly and and defended the defini- the divinity of Christ and he was he was exiled he was exiled like five times excommunicated um, twice if i'm not mistaken excommunicated twice da 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 and he he was absolutely correct and it was the church was reduced down to the point where it was just it almost it almost died, and Saint Athanasius is credited with with keeping the church going through this horrible period in in the fourth century. Um, and we owe we all owe him so much. And when you say the creed, I mean the creed is largely the Nicene Creed. There are two creeds: the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. These are directly coming from this man defending the divinity of Christ and saying, we here in the Catholic Church, in the one true church, we understand that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, period, end of story. And um, so when when people start talking about this, it, it seems to me it's a very American um, sort of sort of a uh, an error that. If enough people say something is true, then it must be true. Well, if that if that goes, if that holds, then uh, contraception is morally licit because in excess of 95 percent of Catholics in the West contracept when they are of breeding age and and believe further that contraception is morally licit. It's in excess of 95% of Catholics in the West. So if that's the case, if we're going to appeal to this democratic, um, the mob rules idea about these questions of objective reality and that the heirs of of a sufficiently large percentage of the people can take a lie and turn it into the truth, oh, I'm sorry, all bets are off. This is, this is insanity. This is absolute insanity. So if you, you say to me, everyone, everyone placidly accepts that Bergoglio is the Pope, well, you know, I don't. And there's, there's a few other people running around who don't placidly accept this. Um, so you can't say it's unanimous. And also... The truth is not a democracy. The truth is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And things are either true or they are not true. And the heirs of the human race have have nothing to do have nothing to do with it. So I, I reject these arguments um, just instantaneously and and quite easily. I mean, it doesn't. It seems to me that it doesn't take much to think your way through this. And I firmly believe that we are in the days of Fatima. That these this is a unprecedented emergency situation. And so 
I don't think that it makes sense to pretend that it's not an emergency situation and to pretend that everything's fine and that the College of Cardinals is fine and that the 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 bishops are are all wonderful, trustworthy, orthodox, believing Catholics and that we can and we can sit in confidence and and wait for them to tell us what the truth is. I, I think this is, I don't understand how people can make the argument anymore, looking at the state of the church today, how you can, how, the, the, how these men are not the faithless hirelings that our Lord specifically warned us against in the Good Shepherd Discourse. And hopefully that answers the first part of Kyle's question, and the second mm. part really goes to the foundation of uh, why you believe that Pope Benedict is still the Pope, and that is uh, that that he did not follow canon law in giving his his uh, resignation. Let's just set aside for for the moment uh, whether or not it was a coerced resignation, which would be uh, invalid on the face of it if it was. Right. Uh, Kyle says the papacy is an absolute monarchy, and the pope can adhere to canon law or he can depart from it as he pleases. And canon law is not binding on the pope. So if he makes his resignation and it's made manifest, it's legal. How do you respond to that? No, uh, the the Pope cannot is not above the truth of both divine and natural law. And what we're talking about here in terms of Ratzinger's faulty attempted resignation is a matter of natural law. Um, he does not. Nobody has the power to supersede that. And that argument is extraordinarily dangerous. Because what it does is it, that is that is a direct attack on the rule of law itself. What, what just think about it logically? Why in the world would Canon 188, which is the little paragraph of law that deals with papal resignations and what would make papal resignations invalid, what purpose would that serve if the Pope is completely above all law and is not held? to any law whatsoever. Why does Canon 188 even exist? Why do any laws exist? It, it, this, it's this irrational thought process that, you know, we have these laws, we have these rules and regulations, oh, but they don't apply. This is the problem that we see throughout our society today as the rule of law collapses. What you see in terms of, let's talk about a secular government when you have a collapse in the rule of law and the ascendancy of a despotic government, it isn't that the lawlessness is a function of the fact that the, the culture descends into anarchy. It's exactly the opposite. Despotic tyrannies, the code of law that they promulgate just goes through the roof. It's enormous. Look at the U.S. code. Look at all of these codes. You can even argue that the worse the government the more onerous the, the, the code of law is for, for that government. It's precisely because, and what Satan wants to do, is have all of these laws that are on the books that are then only selectively enforced. And so nobody has any confidence or assurance or equal protection under the law. In terms of this, in terms of Canon 188 and, and the Canon Law of the Church, the issue here is, and, and this is a big one for me, is the plain sense of the words on paper. The plain sense of the words on paper is 
the final backstop and protection that people have against um, basically a tyranny and a tyranny of lawyers. Okay, if if the plain sense of the words on paper have no meaning, and in some cases, some people argue that the plain sense of the words on paper means exactly the opposite of what the plain sense of the words are. If if the plain sense of the words are meaningless, if the law itself is meaningless and arbitrary, and the Pope, as as is argued by by the listener who sent in the question, if he is above both the divine and the natural law, then all bets are off. All bets are off, and then you you instantly get into questions. If you believe that some that a human being, even the Pope, is above the divine and natural law. Now this gets into questions about even very quickly about the existence of God himself. Does that mean that the Pope as an absolute monarch is above God? I mean, these, this is just ridiculous. And it, it doesn't take but two logical steps to get to where you're even questioning the existence of God when you start calling these things into question. So Ratzinger's faulty resignation made in substantial error in the belief that he could um, – that he could alter the papacy, that he could fundamentally transform it, turn it into a synodal collegial office in which he retained the contemplative um, aspect of it, but then allowed for his successor to to be elected and the successor would execute the active um, the active ministry of the Petrine office. This this is nonsense. Rats, Ratzinger nor anyone else has the ability to to fundamentally transform this office which was established by Jesus Christ himself. And so that's how this gets into divine and natural law, specifically natural law. You cannot change something that God Almighty himself instituted. That is that is the essence of this substantial error that's been made. So um I would also remind people of the fourth joyful mystery of the rosary, which is the presentation of our Lord at the temple. So the eighth day after our Lord was was born, he is taken and he is circumcised. And then the 40th day after his birth, he's taken back to the temple and he is presented as as the firstborn. Um, our, our Lord is God. If, they, if any argument could be made that that someone or something is excluded from from these laws. Of course, it's the fact that God Almighty would be, you know, incarnate as a human being, would be excluded from these laws of circumcision, the shedding of his blood, which we now know was a proto-passion, and from the presentation at the temple, because he is the God to which the presentation is being made. Um, and yet, what do we see? We see that our Lord as an infant and the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph follow the rule of law, testifying to the importance of the rule of law and of this internal consistency. And the, this, the, these people who had, frankly, every right to say, no, 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 I am not going to be shedding the blood of my, of my son because my son is, in fact, God incarnate. Did, did they do that? No. They submitted to the rule of law. The rule of law is, is so important, and you, it's the last line of protection. It's what holds human civilization together, and the internal consistency of it 
is what is so important. So, you know, we get into this situation with anti-Pope Bergoglio, and really the only argument that people can make is, oh, well, Canon 188 doesn't apply. Well, wait, why? I, I, I have no understanding of why it would be that Canon 188 does not apply to the attempted resignation of Joseph Ratzinger. Just because it's inconvenient? Well, I'm sorry, but that's that's not good enough. The rule of law matters. The plain sense of words matters. And it is very clear, and it's been made very clear, and you have to willfully, it, it requires a willful suspension of disbelief to argue at this point, after everything that's been said and everything that's been done, and every single day for the last how many years where Pope Benedict XVI has got woken up, gotten out of bed, um, his staff has called him Pope Benedict, His Holiness, he gets up, he puts on the white, he and he calls himself the Pope Emeritus. Well, there's no such thing as a Pope Emeritus. This this makes no sense. This was done in substantial error. This is why this is why the rule of law is so intensely important. Because if not, you just descend into these absolutely chaotic situations like we're in right now. This is this is the essence of chaos. And in fact, it's it's Bergoglio's self-proclaimed theme. Hagan Leo, make a mess, raise hell. The man wants chaos. And that is the fruit of all of this. And that answers Kyle's question. And we will answer questions on topics more than just Catholicism. So if you have questions about insurance, uh, politics, uh, the financial markets, uh, we're not just going to be answering questions about religion only, right, Ian? That's right. Absolutely. We want this. We, In fact, I my vision is that, you know, if we do an hour-long podcast, that we'll have three or four questions and one, two, or three of those will be secular, and then the rest will be churchy stuff. But I want to cover both in every podcast if we can. Okay, one other side point that, that you, you mentioned there, talking about the rule of law and how uh, uh, Jesus himself, God incarnate, followed the law. Looping back to something you'd mentioned earlier, where he only definitively said that he was the Son of God one time, and who did he say it to and under what circumstances? It was the head of the of the Jewish religion, Binding Christ under obedience. Tell me whether or not you are the Christ. That was the only right. time. Was the only time he ever said it. Yep, that's right. But other that's than that, it was right. who do you think I am? And yep. for, and for those of you of, of you who do tune in for the religious content, we're not going to do away with that altogether. It's it's going to be a, a good balance. And one thing for sure, these are this is definitely a very confusing time. And what a great week in terms of liturgical feasts. If you follow the traditional calendar, a great trifecta. And you already mentioned uh, uh, Saint Athanasius. Uh, a powerful intercessor for confusing times, especially when you seem to be the only person at times, not you personally, but when it, when it seems like, it, like the entire world is against you and, and, mm-hmm. and you feel crazy for proclaiming the truth, you've got a friend with him. And and uh, it, even though it's still the third, you know, for a few more minutes, uh, tomorrow, uh, May 4th, is the Feast of St. Monica. And if anybody knows the the pain and, and the experience of seeing somebody go astray, whether it's a, a loved one or just people in general, and, and, and trying to get them back to the truth. Uh, she fought the good fight for over, was it 33 years? And it finally paid off with this guy we like to call St. Augustine. 
That was That's that right. was her son who who had gone gone astray and and finally came back and became the Doctor of Grace, uh, a, a a great great saint in the Catholic Church, and of course also for the traditional Catholics, you can't forget Cinco de Mayo, and not because of what happened south of the border here, it's because we're celebrating the uh, Pope Saint Pius V who codified. What was already an ancient mass at the time, but it, if you go to the traditional mass anywhere, that's the mass that was codified in 1570 by him. That's right. That's the mass of Pius V. So huge. And what did we also had? We had on Sunday we had Saint Catherine of Siena, uh, who of, uh, was also the feast of of the Good Shepherd. I thought you were going to mention that a minute ago. Good Shepherd, absolutely. And then um, oh, and then of course. Um, May 1st, St. Joseph, um, St. Joseph the Worker, a feast that was that was originally promulgated in order to combat communism. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we've had we've had an, a huge week this week and very, very powerful. So many, so many saints were so blessed and all of them, all, all, all the saints, please, please pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us. Absolutely. And until next week, for Anne, I'm Super Nerd, and we will see you next week. God bless, guys. Take care.